Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for joining us today. So today's guest is Leslie Barber, who is the founder of Grief Warrior, which is a company that brings recognition, respect, and reconnection to the grieving. Leslie's husband, Steve, died from esophageal cancer on the summer solstice of 2015. The longest day of the year became the worst day of her life. She and her six-year-old daughter were devastated. Leslie has channeled her sorrow into Grief Warrior to help other grievers. Grief Warrior offers corporate workshops and trainings on grief, one-to-one and group coaching, and heartfelt sympathy gifts for the grieving. Grief Warrior's workshops and trainings enable corporations to acknowledge grief within their workplace. Thank you so much to Leslie for sharing her heart with us today. And thanks for being here. Just a little PS as you listen to today's episode. Um, Forgive us and please keep in mind that we run on bare bones here. And this is very grassroots. And then towards the end, you're going to hear a little overlap as there were some issues apparently in this recording platform that we used. Um, Please try to overlook that. I found that I could still get a full sense of what the conversation was. I just wanted you to understand that I am aware that that's there and I'm working at trying to get a a more smooth format for us all. Take care. Hi, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Becky. It's a delight to be with you. So I'm wondering if you could just start off by maybe telling us where you're at in the world and just letting us know about your story of loss and let's just start having a conversation. Well, that sounds great. So I live in Portland, Oregon um, with my 11-year-old daughter and our Cavapoo fur baby. And my story of loss started about almost five years ago. My husband, Steve, died June 21st of 2015. Uh, That year it was Father's Day, and it was also the summer solstice. So the longest, longest day of the year became the worst day of my life. I'm so sorry. Thank you. He died after a five-month um, journey with esophageal cancer. So it was very fast, um, from, you know, the first word of cancer to trying to figure out what was wrong to trying to, um, you know, obviously treat the cancer. It, It was just like a, an unbelievable battle and, um, you know, journey and struggle. And after he died, you know, my, my world just stopped. It just, we were completely shattered. I can't imagine what a 
gosh, what a roller coaster, I'm sure. But also that's five months is not long to wrap yourself around that, is it? No, it was so fast. It was every day waking up, um, you know, wondering what body part was going to fall apart that day. It was hope and despair and kind of always bad news. We had found the cancer, uh, un- you know, unexpectedly. So he went in with a kidney stone attack, something that he'd had before. And when they did the CT scan at the, in the emergency room, they found uh, enlarged lymph nodes and told us to see an oncologist. Oh my so gosh. It was very unexpected. He had no symptoms at all. And so we were sh- shocked. I mean, absolutely stunned. He's 46, high school teacher, um, tennis coach, beloved, happy, you know, ath- athletic, active man. Um, and it was just really stunning. So it took the, the, you know, medical professionals a few months to even figure out what kind of cancer he had because they found the metastases, but they did not find the source easily. And it was very stealthy, the, the cancer um, that he, you know, the source was, was ultimately found, but it, it took a while. And by that point, you know, we tried a lot, we'd thrown a lot of chemo at it and, um, you know, he wanted to try everything and ultimately the cancer was very progressive and went straight to his brain and Steve, Steve died very quickly. So, you know, it, the, when the grief hit, when, when he died and our, you know, my daughter was two weeks shy of seven. Um, when, when he died, it was, we were in as much shock as we were sorrow and despair. And I think it took us, I know for me, it took us, took me months to just walk in circles and try to understand what had happened and how could that happen so quickly and how could your body turn on you so quickly and what did we miss? And all of that, it, it was really stunning. Can I ask a, a logistical question? How did mm-hmm. they finally figure out esophageal cancer? So the, we were first at, at one hospital system and the time we lived in the Bay Area. And that hospital system was not very interested in testing. And so they were, they didn't want to do a lot of different um, exploratory tests, um, like an endoscopy, for example. They were really convinced he had um, some sort of, um, you know, testicular cancer, or maybe it was a bone cancer. Um, They had all kinds of theories. They just decided they wanted to throw chemo at it. After a few months you know, the chemo made Steve really sick. He did Mm. 40 hours of chemo, um, in a week and it, it rendered him almost like a, a six foot tall baby. He really couldn't function. 40 hours in one week, 40 hours in one week. Yes. My goodness. And, you know, he wanted to do it because he wanted to live. Yeah. And that's what they told us would help him live. And so after a few months, the cancer, was not retreating in the way it was not, um, shrinking, you know, 
the, the metastasized tumors were not getting smaller and they were repeatedly looking for a mass. Like that's what they wanted. I think they wanted to find a big mass and all of the different scans, none of them were showing that. And so ultimately I took him to another hospital system. And when we did that, I, I had done some research. They had diagnosed him with something called cancer of unknown primary. And when I'd done some research, I'd learned that 70 or 80% of the time, that's a GI cancer. And so we took him to a GI oncologist in another hospital system. And immediately that particular oncologist was willing to do um, an endoscopy, but first he wanted to do a brain MRI. And when he did the brain MRI, we found, he found the cancer all over Steve's brain. And so we had to wait two weeks and then they were willing to do an endoscopy after Steve went through radiation. And that's when they discovered through the endoscopy that it was, you know, it was a, a long, like five inch, one or two millimeter thick, um, you know, tumor stretch of stretch of the tumor. So it wasn't the mass that they were, the doctors were really wanting to find. It was a very stealthy, um, you know, tumor that was in his esophagus and then the upper lining of his stomach. And just caused him no discomfort, nothing in that way that he would have ever picked up on. Um, not really. I mean, they did ask him, the GI doctor asked him, had he ever had acid reflux? And he admitted that he had through the endoscopy. They learned he had something called Barrett's esophagus, which I have, he didn't know he had this. Yeah. It's a malformed esophagus. And I think up to 10% of the time, Barrett's can become esophageal cancer. And so this was clearly something he had developed or had over the course of his life. But, you know, and I, I remember Tums lying around and, you know, different types of um, acid reflux type medications, but never to a point where it would keep him up at night or he would want to go to the doctor. So there wasn't anything glaring that Steve ignored. It was just, um, it was just very stealthy. Mm. And I remember one of the doctors saying to me, um, this cancer wants to take your husband. This cancer wants your husband's brain. And I remember just being, you know, reeling from hearing that, um, because in her opinion, we weren't going to be able to do anything to stop the cancer from killing Steve. Um, and ultimately that, that doctor told me he had two months to live and he lived two months and one week from that day. Wow. Yeah. It was That's stunning. interesting. That's, uh, yeah. My experience with oncologists is typically always, you know, almost to the very end, you know, one more thing, one more thing, but it sounds like that person was very much rooted in, um, what they saw as the reality. Hmm. I cornered her. <laughs> did you? Yeah. So okay. I did. I yeah. cornered her. I said, I've got a six-year-old. I need to know what I'm dealing with here. I need, nobody would tell us anything about his prognosis other than it's not good. And I remember so many of the doctors were our age. Like so many of them had kids, my oh. daughter's age. I think they just, they're human. They couldn't necessarily um, sit us down and say, you know, this is, this is, we're talking months. Um, and so that was really, I don't know in hindsight, Becky, if I would have preferred to have known. Um, I think, I, I think I, 
didn't mind hoping that we were talking about years and, um, and, and I think I would have kept doing what we were doing. We would have just kept trying to, um, treat the cancer and try to change Steve's prognosis. And ultimately we couldn't do that. That's one of the, um, I want to say a word and not cuss, but uh, a mind blow, I'll say (laughs) a mind blow Mm -hmm. of cancer, isn't it? That, you know, even if you're a a person of the mindset of, okay, you know, sadly, we all must die, um, you know, not necessarily 100% behind prolonging the inevitable, you know, if it's going to cause undue discomfort, etc. When you're in the midst of that, it's a, it's a different type of ride, isn't it? Because there's always, especially with a young person like that, I don't mean to tell you your story. I'm thinking of my story with my brother, you know, and there's just always hope. There's always the, um, is this sign a positive? Is this sign you know, something that actually, because you hear of enough of those miracle stories that you just don't, you don't want to give up that hope, do you? You don't. You have to keep that hope. And it's not an easy thing to keep the hope. Um, I remember at one point um, they were going to be doing a new scan. This was maybe a few months in and we were going to see if the 40 hour, he had done three sessions of 40 hours of chemo um, per week, two weeks apart. And we were going to get the results of those scans. And we went to the movies and we just kept buying movie tickets over and over again until ultimately in one of the movies, the phone rang and we both just, you know, ran out of the movie theater to pick up the phone. And um, it was good news. It looked like the cancer, the tumors had gotten smaller. And I remember just, we were screaming, you know, in in the movie theater complex, just jumping up and down and hugging each other and so happy. And then within two weeks, um, Steve's kidneys were shutting down Mm. and then his, and then he woke up one day and his eyes were yellow and his liver was shutting down within weeks of that. It was as if we would get one step forward and then 22 steps backwards. Mm. Um, I've never loved the battle language with cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I, I work hard not to use it, even though you want to, you know, feel that way. Steve was a historian and he loved learning about wars and talking about wars. And he really went into this cancer journey with that kind of mentality of like, I'm gearing up for a battle and I have to go in with the hope that I can win. And it's taken me a few years to really change my language there because, you know, it's, he didn't lose. He, he would have done anything to be able to stay alive, right. To see his daughter grow up, to, be with me. Um, this was not about him not being a fighter or, or even a warrior. This was about him, um, about the cancer, just, you know, having, having more, um, more power than, um, 
than what we were able to fight it with. And, and that, um, that's what it felt like every day. It felt like every day, what's the new battle, right? Where were we going to be, um, you know, where were we going to be attacked from? And sometimes it was Steve's brain. Um, when the cancer went to the leptomeningeal layer of his brain, that by the word way, by the way, is a word I never knew before. Um, I learned how to say leptomeningeal um, through this cancer process. And when it did that, it started to change his ability to find words. So he would say things like, hey, can you turn the rain on? And he would mean, can you turn the heat on? Mm. Now, our six-year-old thought that was the most hilarious thing she'd ever heard. Um, but it was heartbreaking because, you know, he knew that he wasn't, he knew something was, was off. And so then off to the doctor, we would go, is this the medication? Is this the cancer? What's going on here? Um, so it really was, it was, um, every day, uh, a struggle in what's going to happen today. Was he processing his death along the way or not going there at all with you? Not really. Um, and I have had a lot of, uh, guilt is maybe the right word. I've had a lot of, um, struggle around that. We talked about him dying twice. Once was in reference to the fact that his heart was broken, that he could not see Emily grow up, our daughter. That was all he ever wanted, mm. you know, was a little girl. And he always wanted to just see her grow up. And his heart was broken, was broken. And we had that conversation. Another time, um, we were kind of joking about the fact that he was a high school teacher. And so he was really good with teenagers. And I was terrified at the idea of having a teenage daughter. And so we had always had this deal. I'll get her to 13. And then after that, you're in charge. Mm -hmm. And I remember just crying to him one night and saying, I need you to come back when she's 13. Mm -hmm. We cut that deal. Mm -hmm. Like that was the deal. And him just saying, I'll try, you know, I'll try. And, and I wish for so long, I wished that we could have talked more about it. And I have a, now a number of widow friends whose spouses had cancer and died of cancer and they were able to talk about it or, you know, or discuss what life would be like after they died. Steve didn't do that. He wasn't, he wasn't comfortable doing it. And I remember calling my brother actually not long ago and saying to him, like, did I fail Steve in not having that conversation with him? And my brother just said to me, Steve didn't want to have that conversation. He didn't want to, he wanted to live and he didn't want to have that conversation. So I've had to give myself grace, Becky, and just really let, let go of, um, of that, just knowing that, that the man Steve was, if there was 1% chance he could live, that's the chance he wanted to take. And that's what he wanted to focus on. Absolutely. I think you have to, to absolutely give yourself a pass on that. It wasn't your conversation to have necessarily, right? right? It was his, Yeah. you know, it, it is the dying person or the person that's in this stage of life. It's their conversation to have. And, and the more you sit with people in that space or work with people in that space, it's, it, it really is about 
giving up your own agenda, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. We do have to let go of what our agenda is in those situations. I think what I've learned since Steve dying is that that's when the agenda converted to mine, right? Right. So it really is his agenda and his process until he dies. And then it's about the people who are living still. Yeah. And that even took me a while um, to really wrap my arms around that. Like if I do X, Y, Z, will that make Steve upset? Well, wait a second. Steve's not here. You know, if I raise Emily with this perspective, will that be in line with what he wanted? Well, I don't know. He's not here. So it's, yes, it's, it's all about giving yourself grace. I think throughout the whole process. Yes, Um, definitely. And so many of these things, I mean, they're observations that you pick up on when you, you know, it, it is an honor to walk that walk with someone. Um, I know it feels your story just really breaks my heart. Just hearing the person Steve was thinking of your young daughter, thinking of you thinking of his students. Um, Yes. You know, the loss that would have been for everybody, but, but you have the honor and, and to be by his side and it's all, it's, it's like graduate school times a million on life walking that walk with somebody, isn't it? Yes, it is. And we had hundreds of students who came to his public memorial service from 15 years ago, all the way up to his students, you know, 15 years before he died, all the way up to the students who were his students when he died. And I learned so much about Steve after he died, even being married to him. Um, I remember there were twin 18 year old boys who were in one of his government classes and they were just sobbing on my shoulders at the memorial service saying, Steve brought our us sandwiches every day, or Mr. Barber, of course, is what they called him. And we would sit and we would have lunch with him. And that was the only lunch our family could afford. Um, or, you know, they couldn't afford, they couldn't afford lunch. And so Steve would bring these lunches and they would sit and talk about politics and talk about current affairs. And they were just sobbing. And, and I thought, well, I never knew Steve did that. He left earlier in the morning and I did think that he went through a lot of sandwich supplies, but I didn't know he was a healthy guy. I didn't know that he was actually bringing sandwiches to students who needed them. Mm-hmm. And I just love that. That was such a great example of what a, what a kind and humble man he was. He didn't even need his wife to know what he was doing. He was doing it because it was the right thing. And stories like that just broke my heart even more. Because mm-hmm. he had so much more to give kids and he had so many kids who he encouraged to go to college. They were the first in their family to ever go to college. And it's just, yeah, it's a tragedy. Can you talk to us a little bit about your daughter's process during yes. the illness well, and his death? So during the illness, you know, she was six and she was in first grade and she knew there was a whole lot wrong. We were open with her. Um, you know, there's cancer in daddy's body. It's not supposed to be there. And 
the doctors are working to, you know, um, remove the cancer and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, I remember at one point I did tell her that the doctors said the cancer was retreating and, um, you know, I regretted that for years. I mean, I, I did it with the information I had, but then when he died that she held that against me for years, I had to really earn her trust back because it felt to her like I had not told her the truth about what was happening. So one time, right, this little kiddo was so smart. She really wanted to know exactly what was coming. Um, but I didn't know and neither did the doctors. When Steve um, I just want to pause one yes. second. Mm-hmm. I just think that's a very, very important for us to hear. Those of us mm. listening and understanding that part of what, why we hear these stories is to better inform us in our lives. And that mm. what you're telling us is that a six-year-old wanted the truth yeah. of what was happening. Okay. Absolutely. She wanted the truth. And it was interesting because I had um, elders in our family who wanted me to fly her away so that she wouldn't have to watch her father die because there are older generations where that was what they would have done. Right. Or they would have not talked about what's wrong with daddy. Right. And we chose not to do that. Um, In fact, I had to argue with members of my family um, on that very point, because I wanted Emily to be able to experience it. I knew that I could pay a therapist in the future to help her, um, you know, really understand her memories. I could not pay a therapist in the future to help her create her memories. And so I, that was really my mantra, my mantra throughout it was that I wanted Emily to experience what, um, you know, what, what her father was going through and to, to create new memories with him. Still, there was still time and ability for her to create new memories. And she was really aware of what, what was happening. The night that Steve died, he died at three forty-five in the morning. You know, we were woken up by a night nurse who was supporting us and who had said, it's time. His, his breathing has changed. You know, he was in hospice um, just for three days. It was really fast. And they, the nurse woke us up and we went in the room with Steve along with his members of his family. And, um, and Emily was crying. And I remember we were saying to him how much we loved him. And it was very loud, um, was not the peaceful um, experience a lot of people talk about, or you see in the movies, it was, it was oxygen machines and, and his breathing, everything was just, it felt like he didn't want to die because I don't think he did. And then Emily ran out of the room and I ran after her and he took two more breaths and then he died. And eventually Emily went back to sleep because she was six. And when she woke up in the morning, she said to me, mommy, I had this terrible dream that daddy died. And I said, oh, honey, he, you know, he did, he did die and you were there. Um, and then, and then you went back to sleep. She burst into tears. She ran over to the table and she grabbed a whole bunch of paper and she wrote a bunch of things on, on these different scraps of paper. And then she ran straight out our front door and started throwing them on the lawns of our neighbors. And so we went and grabbed you know, them because I 
I kind of wanted to know what my six-year-old was, was doing. So one of our family members went and grabbed them. And what it said on them was, my daddy died and our address. So this little six-year-old knew that her whole world had stopped, right? That everything had come to a screeching halt, but that the world was still going on for everyone mm. else. And she just wanted everyone else to know, my daddy has died. This is our address. And our world has stopped. And that's really how being around her in grief has been. She has been kind of that profound leader of what she's experienced because she doesn't have the um, sensors, right? Or the filters that you and I have. Um, She just tells it like it is. And that was a really profound experience. That blows me away hearing that. I, I, to, that she got that so immediately. It, I remember I was 22 when my father died and that was the first super close stuff, you know, being of an age to remember, but it didn't hit me immediately, you know, that, that quick, that, that, that feeling of, um, everybody's just going on with their world. You know, and it it sounds like that hit her so immediately. Bless her heart. Immediately. And it's just infuriating, right? That the rest of the world continues on when yours has stopped. And yeah, there's another lesson I think that she really taught me that's coming to mind. And that is around language. And we talk a lot about, um, you know, we find different ways to kind of deny the death in our language, um, I lost my husband or he passed on versus he died. Mm. And a few weeks after Steve died, someone said to Emily, I'm so sorry you lost your daddy. And without skipping a beat in her usual effervescent, um, you know, excited self as a, as a little six, seven year old, she turned seven, two weeks later. um, She looked at the person and said, Oh, Oh, he's not lost. He's right over there. And she pointed to the urn. She said, I know exactly where he is. He's dead. And I just thought, yeah, out of the mouth of babes, right? He, this is, this is final. He is dead. He is not lost. We know exactly where he is. And, and that may be uncomfortable for other people to hear. And yet that is our reality. That's not going Mm. to change. So five years now, have you watched her process in different ways Mm. as she Absolutely. Well, she's a tween now. And um, one of one of the most beautiful things that I've noticed is that she she got a cell phone um, last year when she turned 11. And she put his email address in her cell phone. And she texts him, because that's her mode of communication, right? She wants to text me, she wants to text her friends. And she wants to text her dad. And so I monitor her phone and she knows I, I do that. And at one point I, I noticed that she was texting him and it's so incredible. Um, Dad, you know, there's this boy I want to talk to you about and you would have good perspective because you're a man, but you're dead. So I can't talk to you about it. Sad emoji face. And it's just beautiful that she, you know, her grief is shifting with her 
mm. emotion um, with her development. And it's interesting because right now with the COVID-19, um, the coronavirus pandemic, you know, as our world kind of consolidated over the last month or so, um, I know for me, it was very reminiscent of the consolidating of my life when Steve was getting, when he was sick. Um, you know, instantly I'm, I'm not volunteering anymore. I'm not going into Emily's classroom. I'm, you know, I had stopped work. Like everything is consolidating solely, um, to focus on his health. And, and I think Emily's been noticing that as well through the coronavirus pandemic. And recently I noticed that she had um, started watching a TV show that she had watched when she was much littler, like five or six. And she was just enjoying it so much, hooting and hollering. And I said to her, honey, why this show? And she said, oh, because this is the show I was watching when daddy was dying. Mm. So her, her way of kind of processing and maybe making sense of what she's going through right now, where she can't see her friends and she's not going to school mm. in the same way. Um, and we're all, you know, in the house together. Um, we, we're not going to the grocery store unless we have to, things like that. That's very reminiscent for her of when Steve was dying and it is bringing up a lot of big feelings, right? It's almost, it, it brings up the term for me, the body memories, you know, it's almost like there's this visceral, yeah. it, it was, it's almost like it's an atmospheric memory for her. And I think for a Absolutely. lot of people, I mean, body keeps there, the score, right? Yeah. She's kind of concretely yes. showing you that and saying that by watching that show that, that, yeah, this is, this is the way it felt some degrees of it. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So she's, um, she's doing really well considering. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. that's beautiful and a testimony to being able to to be open experience the full spectrum of her feelings and be open about it that's beautiful and she you know has been i i um started her in play therapy when the cancer went to steve's brain and i have kept her in play therapy so she was six when she started play therapy and when we moved to Portland from the Bay Area, I remember getting a call from another mom who said, your daughter's been asking my daughter who her therapist is. So Emily must have been in third grade. She's like, and my, my, you know, we're not comfortable talking about our child being in therapy. And, you know, could you please ask Emily to stop? And I remember thinking um, to myself, well, no, it's totally normal for her, right? This is complete normalization of therapy and support and that we ask people for help and that we talk about our feelings. And I remember saying to the mom, you know, I'm, I'm very sorry. She's not doing this because she's trying to make your child uncomfortable. She's doing it because it's almost like asking, you know, what's your favorite meal? Like, you know, it's just totally normal for her. And I'm really grateful. I think, you know, mental health um, and, and really having the ability to talk about, what is going on and acknowledge it and recognize the sorrow and the sadness, just like we recognize joy and celebration. Um, that, that's what we have to do. That's, we need to change that in our culture, that that is something that we Absolutely. don't want to talk about. So segue that into, tell us what your life has turned into and your work has turned into after Steve's death. 
Yeah. So um, a, almost a year ago, June 21st of last year, I founded Grief Warrior. And I created the company because I wanted to bring that acknowledgement to our culture around grief. And I wanted to bring recognition. I wanted to bring respect. And I wanted to bring reconnection. I have found in my journey of grief that so many people didn't know what to say or they didn't know what to do, or quite frankly, they wanted to fix me. And I wasn't broken. I was really sad. I, my husband died and I loved him and I wanted him back. So I was mad and I was angry and I was confused and I didn't understand why this was happening. And I went through all of the, why me, why Emily, why Steve? I went through that, all of the emotions and feelings. Um, and I even felt relief, relief that he wasn't in unbelievable pain anymore, right? And then I felt guilt that I felt relief that he wasn't in pain, because what does that mean about me, right? And did he know how much I loved him? And, you know, did we do this right? And did we do that right? And I mean, all of it, like it was that year after he died was just hell. It was mm. survival. It was, um, you know, it, it was moments of fetal position on the floor because I couldn't hold my heavy heart up anymore. Right. And, um, and that, that journey made me realize that grief is super intense. I'd never experienced anything like it before. And it is so feared in our culture. Brene Brown even calls it the most feared emotion. And I'm staring it down. That's what Grief Warrior is about. It's about staring down the idea that grief is fear to be feared because it's not. Grief is about love. And I am calling it for what it is. And that's, that's the change I want to add my voice to. There are many people, you included, and many others who've been, um, you know, have been carrying that torch for a long time. And I just want to add another voice. Um, and I happen to be focused on a couple of areas. Um, one is uh, corporate work and trying to bring some normalization and recognition to grief and death in the workplace. Um, I also have been trying to help supporters do something that's helpful. Um, a lot of people sent me flowers and I personally did not love the flowers simply because they died and they were already dying when they got to me. And I just felt like, great, one more thing I can't mm. keep alive in my house. And so I've developed a line of heartfelt sympathy gifts that have useful, healing, helpful products that you can send to somebody as a gift after they've had a significant death. And it honors and acknowledges um, things that they might need over time. And the box lives on. Um, it doesn't die. And so that's, there are several ways. I also am a grief coach. I work with clients um, who are in significant grief. And I like, I, I'm a professional um, trained coach and I love the application of coaching um, to grief because it's 
often something that's just happened. It's immediate. It's right now. And that's what coaches do. They meet you kind of where you are right now and they help you get to where you want to go. And so often in grief, we don't know where we want to go, right? Our entire future has changed and it maybe it's completely upside down. And so it's such an honor to work with my clients and meet them kind of right, right where they're at. And maybe the, the moving forward for that day is simply one millimeter. It's not a leap. It's just, it's just tiny. Maybe it's even acknowledgement that they're in grief because so many of us don't want to accept that. We don't want to accept we're in grief. So that's what grief warrior is, is about. And, um, it's an honor to do the work. We've built a community on Instagram and Facebook where people can come and bring their grief just how they are. And no one's going to tell you to do it any differently. You're just going to, you do you, mm. you're just going to do it your way. Well, interestingly, I listened to Brene Brown and David Kessler's conversation earlier today. And yes, so it's bringing up for me a couple things. And one of them is I love, to see grieving people or people who have had deep loss be the ones that are working with grieving people. And he, he made the comment and mm. I've had this comment with so many therapist friends that we would just like to um, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but th what the conversation I remember I had actually was with a uh, most recently was with an old boss of mine who was a longtime therapist and we got together for lunch when I was back in the States and she had had losses since I'd seen her last. And she just looked at me and said, what were we doing with those people we worked with before we had, before we experienced our own mm -hmm. loss? And it was the same David um, mm -hmm. expressing that about the loss of his son, like wanting just to go back to all the parents and say, yes. I'm sorry. I didn't know. And so I yeah. do believe, you know, I've often said to people who are going to have therapy for a child or for family issues, you know, you want somebody who has had a family and children, if that's the area that you're working in. And I feel like it's the same thing for loss is my first question, if I was going to encourage somebody, if they're shopping around to work with somebody over their grief, is to ask them what their loss experience, their experience with death has been um, themselves. So congratulations, you've passed that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and his... Yes, I have had, well, and on the, on the therapy note, um, I had a beloved therapist, Becky, who carried me while Steve was sick. I, he, we spoke twice a week while he was sick. Um, she was often the only person I felt like I could really confide in. Um, she'd had a significant death in her life as well. She really understood. She had also had cancer. Um, I knew she had had cancer. It was in remission. So she really could be with me. And about nine months after Steve died, she came to me one day and told me she had to immediately close her practice because the cancer was back. Oh. And six months later, she died at 58. And I mm. really lost mm. it at that point. <laughs> that's when, that's when the darkness hit hard. Um, so, so hard. And, 
and part of it was because I think she'd really held me up. Right. And she'd been so important, um, to me and then to lose her felt like I was losing everyone. Right. Who, who mattered to me, um, in my life. And then I, and then you just worry, where's the next shoe going to drop. Um, but I just say that to say that there's so many, there are so many ways to find support. There's so many ways, um, you know, to, to understand loss and to understand grief. And she had had a diagnosis. She knew what that, you know, that, that grief felt like. Um, the therapist I, I came to here in, in Portland, um, was trained specifically by the Dougie center here in Portland, um, which is a a national center for grieving children and families. So I too looked for that. Mm. That was really important to me. And I can tell, you know, you can tell Mm -hmm. when somebody hasn't been through it. Um, and my hope for our culture is that we build empathy, right? We build compassion so that, you know, I, I actually started coaching because I wanted to help other people live their lives with intention and meaning, which is what I've really been focused on since Steve died for myself, living with intention and meaning and purpose every day. And I wanted them to be able to do that with, without watching their husband die, right? I felt like Steve's death taught me how to live. And it took a while. That didn't happen overnight. It took years. But ultimately... Ultimately, I learned how to live and how to bear witness and how to sit with other people's pain without digesting it and without it needing to be about me and without, um, mm. you know, w- without fear. Like I could, I could sit with it. I so badly want to have a conversation with Brene Brown because I loved her interview so much with David Kessler. And yet <laughs> her discomfort <laughs> with grief was palpable. I mean, palpable, right? You could just taste it, the discomfort with grief and the ahas that she was having. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is the, you know, the queen of vulnerability research. And granted, she has said that vulnerability is not her strong suit, but gosh, for somebody like her to understand grief and to be able to share, um, the way she's the way she's starting to do is just well, and it's, it's you know changing. like David comments and that it, it is about feeling all the feelings. The feelings have got to have our way with us, and yes. just because you have befriended grief, as in you know your ability to sit with other people's etc., doesn't mean that it doesn't make us beyond being ripped in shreds when we hear a story or ripped in shreds. No when we go back to those places in time and our own stories. And I think that's, I think that's the part that we have a society that, that thinks it's either, or you're either in total denial and can't go there and talk about death and grief and you like stay clean or else you're mired in grief and loss and turmoil equating that to, turmoil all the time Mm. where you know what I call full spectrum living you know is about the ability to weave in and out of all of those places and it might be within an hour and it might be within five minutes and it might be within a day Uh, um oh yeah the the movie did you ever see the movie inside out I have no do you know that cartoon movie oh I highly recommend it it came out the week Steve died 
and it's a cartoon. Oh, was it with all the feelings? Yes, movie. I did. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. Joy and sadness and how they can coexist. Well, I took Emily to see that approximately half a dozen times in the maybe two or three weeks after Steve died. First, what are you going to do with a six-year-old after her husband, after her father's just died? And so I thought, well, we'll just go to the movies. Three or four times in, she's like, why are we seeing this movie again, Moni? Like, I'll just get you popcorn, sweetie. We'll be fine. It was for me. I needed to really understand yeah. that joy and sadness could coexist. And yes. I could not wrap my arms around that. I couldn't laugh without sobbing anymore. And that took me years, by the way, probably two years to start laughing again without ending up on my knees sobbing. And so I needed that refresher and reminder that joy and sadness absolutely can coexist. And they coexist for me now. Um, they could not coexist no. for me in the early times. In the, I just... I was too hard. My heart was just too broken and it just, I just couldn't get past the sorrow and the sadness, but I did. And I say that to some of, you know, to my grief coaching clients sometimes when they're so deep in the sorrow and the despair, um, you know, they'll ask me like, will I ever feel, you know, will I ever feel joy again? And all I can say is all I know is that I mm -hmm. have, I have, I was where you were. I was on, I, I was in, you know, on the floor in my dark closet, you know, sobbing for months. And now I have joy in my life and I have purpose and I have, you know, purpose. That's not just, I want to be here for my child, right? That's what I lived for after Steve died. I didn't want her to be an orphan. And yet now I have purpose for me again. And that's a huge mm. shift, right? Um, but the grief is carried. The grief is carried. It's as ferocious when the wave comes of grief for me, it's as ferocious as it was the day Steve died. It just comes mm. with more space between it, right? It used to come three or four times a day. Now it comes you know, mm -hmm. once a month or once a quarter, but it takes me down and every so time. Where is Steve I'll living you. for it you does. on a day-to-day -day basis? Cause I'm sure you think about him and feel him. Oh, constantly. Um, well, he's grief warrior. He's part of what I'm doing. I mean, I've devoted, I mean, devoted my life to trying to help other people um, open their hearts to grief I wouldn't be doing this work, I don't think, if he had not died. So he's present in everything I do, um, you know, without, through my work. In, in a way, Grief Warrior and my work now is my forever love letter to him. It's my forever um, devotion to wanting grief to be just a little bit easier for other people. Steve was a teacher. He served. And I think that's, those are, those are the types of things I'm trying to do with Grief Warrior. Um, Steve also shows up for Aww. us as blue butterflies. And, um, and so there are many times where we see blue butterflies and, and I just think there he is saying hello to us. Um, we've had some pretty magical experiences, um, about a year after we moved to Portland, 
a friend gifted us, uh, gifted me a session with a medium and I'd never done that before. And I thought, well, I'd love to try it. Maybe it can bring me some comfort. And, you know, it was an hour session, 55 minutes in, she couldn't get through to anything. Apparently I was energetically dense probably because of grief. And in the last five minutes, she said, you know, I'm sensing a father figure. Is your father still with us? I said, he is. And I said, but my daughter's father is not. And she said, he's covered in blue butterflies. Does that mean anything to you? And Steve was kind of a meat and potatoes kind of, you know, guy. So I was like, I don't know about the blue butterflies. Well, that she said, well, okay. And I just kind of left thinking you win some, you lose some. And that very evening we were at dinner with some new friends in their backyard. It was in August. So beautiful weather. We were sitting at a picnic table and Emily was directly across from me. And in the middle of the meal, a blue butterfly landed on Emily's nose and just sat and stared at her. And I jumped up and said, Oh my gosh, that's daddy. And Emily looked at me and said, I know mama. He used to love kissing me on my nose. You can't make it up, right? It just, that happened right in front of me. And we've had situation like that after situation with blue butterflies. So Steve is very present in our life and, and every day we're talking about him. And we even moved to Portland a year after he died. And I have new friends who have photos of our family, including Steve on their refrigerator. And so he's, he's still part of our life. Well, that's just beautiful. And as we wrap, I want to just comment because as we brought David Kessler and Brene Brown into this conversation, for those that don't know, David Kessler Mm. worked for, for ages with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who had created the five stages of dying was where those um, came from the five stages. And then was a bit transformed into being at that as a grief process. And he contacted the family and the foundation because it had come to him after losing his son, that there's a sixth stage and the sixth stage is meaning, finding meaning. And that's what I'm hearing was your answer. When I asked you the initial uh, response you gave, when I asked you about Steve's presence in your life, is grief warrior um his death has brought a meaning into your life which is then filtering out into many other lives and wow talk about love live and um living on right yeah and and i think um i think it's important for listeners anyone who's who's in deep grief right now to also recognize that it took me years to get to a place where I could find that kind of meaning in, in my journey. Right. And so it might not have to be now. We don't have to find purpose and meaning early or actually even find purpose and meaning in the death. It's actually purpose and meaning in our lives after And that took me a number of years. It took me three or four years. And so there's, there's time. As he said, the meaning is not in the death. The meaning is in, the meaning is in me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is in me, in our life. Right. That's exactly right. And I love that he says that and that he really clarified that 
Um, because so I know after Steve died, you know, Oprah talks all, all the time about, um, you know, there's a lesson in everything you go through. And for, you know, a long time, I just kept thinking, what is the lesson in Steve dying? And I remember listening to a podcast on being with, um, Pauline Boss, who, who's an expert in ambiguous loss. And I remember her saying, there, there isn't any meaning in the death and that's okay. And that was so transformative for me because it allowed me to give up Mm -hmm. the why, right? Why Steve, why me, why Emily, there is no meaning in him dying. Loss happens and that's okay. Where I can find the meaning is in how I'm going to live and, and how I live every day and what I do with my time here, right? With Grief Warrior and how I love and how I care and how I serve. And that's where I've been able to And let us meaning. know, let our listeners know where they can find you, please. Thank you. So our website is agriefwarrior.com. And then they can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter also at a grief warrior. Thank you so, so much they can for find sharing us. your beautiful family with us today and your story. I so appreciate it, Leslie. Oh, thank you, Becky. And thank you so much for this podcast. It has brought me so much solace and connection and belonging. And I just so appreciate well, that's what you do and how you do because it. Because that's the so currency we thrive on. It's <laughs> just knowing Yes, just knowing that anybody yes. is taking any solace or um, feeling any comfort and any understanding with with sharing these stories. Yes. So thank you for being a part of that. You're part of the family now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you take good care. Yay. And, Wonderful. Um, well, it's a joy. All of our listeners. Thank you. You, you too. Please go and look further into A Grief Warrior. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.